0: but we've arrived in Judges chapter 4. This is the fourth week that we've been studying this book together, and Lord willing, we're going to continue in it all the way through. I've had several of you tell me early on that you were anticipating this fourth chapter. So today's your day. Lord, help us. Chapter 4 receives probably the most attention in the book of Judges than any other chapter. Reason being, Deborah is here in the fourth chapter. So is Barak, Sisera, and Jael. This is a great chapter in this historical narrative. But I want to point you early on to the verse that I think is the sum and the theological point to be made out of this chapter. And it's the 15th verse. We'll get to it later as well. But it reiterates what we just sang. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. It's like the first half of chapter 4 builds to verse 15, and the rest of it falls away from it, and the word here is routed. I'm going to talk more about that word when we get to it. I want to begin with a few examples of how this chapter is commonly used and then show you how poverty-stricken that use really is. Chapter 4 is very commonly used by those who are trying to establish as a normative scriptural pattern that women can be in pastoral leadership, that women can be preachers in the church, and the appeal is made to Deborah. I want to be careful here not to say too much, not to say too little, But I want to give you a couple of examples and then show you, if this is all we get from Judges chapter 4, then we have come up very, very short. If this is all we know of Judges chapter 4, we have missed the great truth of God being the God who saves by routing the enemy. And really, that's what he's done for us in Christ. He has routed the enemy of sin. The word rout means to throw into complete panic. And he threw sin in our lives into complete panic when the blood of Christ was shed upon Calvary. He routed sin. He routed the adversary. He routed all the forces of evil on Calvary and worked for us a great salvation. That is the point of Judges 4. Deborah and Barak are mere characters in that larger, greater story of what God has done. But here are some examples, and you'll see the poverty of these examples very clearly. I got this right off of the web, website of Baylor University. Baylor has what they call an assembly of Deborah's daughters. And this is one of their advertisements. Deborah, as a prophetess and judge, Deborah becomes for us a, notice the words, all of these words are important, a potent symbol of female authority and speech. She is an obvious example for women aspiring to claim a public voice In the 19th century, these women who will go on to be mighty preachers, devotional writers, suffragists, even abolitionists, are known as Deborah's daughters. Another website, and this is written by an author who has wrote the book, written the book, notice the title of the book, Your Queendom come this is what she says, with exception of that one pesky little verse in First Timothy. The biblical narrative overwhelmingly speaks about women in leadership position and paints them overwhelmingly in a positive. Light, thus says the author of your queendom come. I use these examples, and there are numerous others, and not to be mean-spirited, not to be made uncomfortable by them, no doubt, nor am I overjoyed in addressing these. But I want to point out what we are all very aware of. Many appeal to Deborah in Judges 4. As the basis for their position of women being among those who were called, gifted, and especially used of God in pastoral ministry. Daniel Block, whose commentary I've greatly benefited from in studying this book of Judges, summarizes this well. When he says, The heroic roles played by women... And the seemingly negative light in which men are cast in this chapter offers investigators fertile ground for their feminist commentary. And he's right. There are heroic women in this chapter. Let's be honest. Deborah and Jael are heroic figures used of God to accomplish the routing of Jabin, king of Canaan. But... There is no, in my estimation, and we're going to deal honestly with the words of Barak. Many have thrown him completely under the bus and have run over him because of his words that he speaks to Deborah. But I'm going to present to you that many of us have completely misunderstood his point. So I'm not agreeing at all that men are cast in a negative, wimpish light in this Chapter, nor do I concur that Barak is to be found there. Might I remind you, we'll come back to this later, but when you turn to Hebrews chapter 11, whose name do you find there? Barak. My intent going through this chapter is not to build up a straw man and then tear it down with old arguments or to use scriptures out of their context. My intent is to look at what the scriptures actually say concerning Deborah and Barak, and we exalt them so far as the scriptures do, and no further. Nor do we want to take away from them their place in this history either. So what I want to do before we begin in verse 1 of chapter 4, I want to pray briefly and ask for for the Lord's help for me and for you as I speak and you listen. So let's do that. Father, we come. Uh, We've got the book of God open before us. Lord, we desire to understand it rightly. Help us to see through the smoke. Help us to see through all of the cultural trappings that have been laid over this fourth chapter. Help us to see the beauty and glory of Christ in it. Help us to see the powerful God at work and saving his people yet again in it. And let us deal honestly with the characters that you've used. We ask in Christ's name that you would help us in this way. Amen. I want you to begin with me here in verse 1 of chapter 4. In this first point, I'm going to title The Cycle of Sin and the Necessity of Salvation. Look at verse 1. When Ehud was dead. You remember remember from last week, Ehud was the left-handed deliverer. When he dies, what happens? Well, you've heard the old saying, like I have, when the cat's away, what do the mice do? They sin. When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again Did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sells them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan. But before we get into him and his place in this chapter, I want you to note with me the cycle of sin and the necessity of being saved from it. Notice the word again in verse 1. This is the repetitive cycle. And Dale Ralph Davis, I want you to hear clearly what he says. Please listen to what he says. I'm quoting him directly because I can't say it any better. He says, it is difficult to be creative in sin. There is a certain monotony about it. Most all of it has been done before. It is simply that we do the same thing again. Sin is a boring routine, not fresh excitement. That's the deceptiveness of it, isn't it? He goes on to say, the fast lane of sin becomes an old rut. Hence, we have two problems with sin. It's slavery and it's staleness. And I end quoting him there. I think he hits the nail on the head. The excitement of sin leads to death the wage of sin is death what once was exciting fresh and new becomes old enslaving entrapping, and damaging damning murderous any other word that you want to attach to it but notice also it's when the external restraint of Ehud is removed that the children of Israel fall into sin again Many of us can relate so easily and so quickly to the Israelites here. Take away external restraint, whether it be the external restraint of fellowship with the church, whether it be the external restraint of a mother or a father, whether it be the external restraint of a close friend, mentor, confidant, whomever it may be, take away the external restraint of this person or group of people in what happens. We fall into sin again. Again, quoting from Mr. Davis, he says, There is something wrong with religion when its degree of fidelity or faithfulness depends solely on outside pressure, influence, or leadership. If we are Christian only because of our surroundings or the expectations of other Christians around us, then we may very well lack a genuine and real work of grace in our hearts. End quote. What's he trying to say? If your Christian faithfulness is dependent upon someone else and not on you, be careful. Be careful. So let me ask the pressing question. Who is responsible for the children of Israel again doing evil in the sight of the Lord? This question needs to be asked, and it needs to be dealt with honestly. Is dead Ehud responsible? Or are living Israelites responsible? Some would say God's responsible. After all, could he not have kept Ehud alive? And all of this would have been avoided. How you answer that question reveals a boatload about your belief concerning accountability and real Christianity. Ehud is not to blame. His being taken off the scene is not to blame, to be, not to blame the Israelites are to blame. That's what I'm trying to say. God is not to blame for removing Ehud from the scene. And this is where we as Christians so often fall short in not accepting personal accountability before God. It's always someone else's fault. Let me remind us all, we are always, always, always accountable to God. He is ever keeping watch over us. The absence or unavailability of another person does not permit our sin or give license to it. Sin is always sin before our holy God. The Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord again, and the Israelites must own that sin themselves. It's not Ehud's fault. It's not God's fault. It's their fault. Oftentimes we make the distinction between a possession of faith and a profession of faith. Profession of faith very often is easy. But actually being in possession of it is something far different. That's the thing that we must be extremely careful of. And yes, I'm inviting you here to examine yourself and your own sinfulness before the Lord. Own it yourself and then cast it off on Christ. And he'll take it away. He's a personal savior. He routes sin personally for you. Here's the problem with the emphasis on accountability in our day. The problem is that it dis- it. It casts blame on those who are not responsible. So I want you to move from that thought with me to the second point, And I'm going to call this just some familiarities and in introductions to certain characters. Here's what is familiar. Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So what does the Lord do in verse 2? He sells them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. The next familiar thing is that the children of Israel cry out to the Lord. And the Lord raises up for them a deliverer. This time it's a two-headed deliverer, Deborah slash Barak. So let's deal with Jabin first. We see him there in verse 2. He's the king of Canaan. If you're a good student of your Bible, you will know that Jabin, king of Canaan, was defeated by Joshua in chapter 11. So how does he again return here in chapter 4? This is also, chapter 4, a favorite of those who try to disprove the Scriptures by having discrepancies. Well, let's, let's deal with that. Jabin, most likely was a common name like Philip or Henry concerning kings, or it could even be considered as the Pharaoh of Egypt, always being referred to as Pharaoh. So that's an easy dismissal of some discrepancy. So we find this man again, or, the, or one bearing his title, Jabin, king of Canaan, but notice his might and his strength. And I think here we are not wrong in seeing him as a picture of the enslavement that you and I were under as being sinners before a holy God. Notice it says he had 900 chariots of iron. And for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Jabin was a tyrant. And when we see his end through the death of the commander of his army, Sisera, later. Just remember, no injustice was done here. Jabin is getting retribution for his actions based upon a holy God. And we see this pattern play out in Judges over and over again, don't we? God raises up, he uses them, and then he puts them down. Thus is the power, the sovereignty, and the providence of a holy God. So Jabin... The the king of Canaan has for his commanding officer, Sisera, who plays a huge part at the end of chapter 4. But then we are introduced for the first time in the fourth verse of chapter 4 to Deborah. And notice what the scriptures say about her. Verse 4, now Deborah, a prophetess. What's the first thing that the scripture says about this woman? She's a prophetess. It gives the name of her husband, Lapidoth. And it says she was judging Israel at this time. It's interesting that some of the the thinking that I began with by authors of books like The Queendom. Don't see Lapidoth as being the name of her husband at all because that would be. Too much to show that she was a woman who was married and under the submission of a husband. So they take the meaning of his name, which means fiery, and they turn it into an adjective of her character. And so they would say that Deborah is a fiery woman, not the wife of Lapidoth, but a fiery woman. Not what the scripture says. There are several prophetesses in the scriptures. Miriam in Exodus, Huldah in Second Kings, Noadiah in the book of Nehemiah, and Isaiah's wife, though she's not named, all considered to be prophetesses. And in all of them, the name of their husband is given. Save for Anna, the last of the prophetesses in the New Testament, we're told that she was a widow. Her husband's name was not given, but her father's name is. And so when we look at Deborah, to give a definition to her, what we do is what the scriptures do. And we begin by saying, first and foremost, she's a prophetess. And what that means is she speaks for God. She's not unique in this calling. She falls into a line of succession that we've gone through by some of the great women characters in the Old Testament. But also dealing honestly with verse 4, it says she was judging Israel at the time. And if you look at that verb for judge in Hebrew, it's the same as Othniel. It's the same as Ehud. It's the same as every other judge, Shamgar. But there are some great differences about her judging Israel. And again, Daniel Block points these out in his commentary, and I think they're very helpful Nowhere are we told that the Lord raised her up like he raised up Othniel or like he raised up Gideon. There is no mention of the empowering of the Holy Spirit given to Deborah. And then we have to ask the question, why Barak? Why is he necessary to this whole story? Never does it say that Deborah saves Israel. That's one of the marks of the judges, that they are deliverers, saviors of Israel. That's attributed to Deborah nowhere in the story. But to Barak. She is absent from the battle scene. And she prefers to refer to herself in the song attributed to her in the fifth chapter, not as a judge, not as a warrior, but in the seventh verse of chapter five, she refers to herself as a mother in Israel. That's the way that she wanted to be immortalized in Scripture. So to deal, again, to deal honestly with her. She is a prophetess, and in so doing, she announces both the will and the word of the Lord. We're also introduced to Barak here in the fourth early verses of the fourth chapter. And we're just told simply that Deborah summons him in the sixth verse. We're also introduced to the name Haber the Kenite in verse 11, and then most notably his wife, Jael, who we'll come into contact with towards the end. So back to Deborah for a moment. Notice how she is used of God to announce the will and the word of God in the sixth verse of chapter four. She sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, And said to him, has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor. Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun. And against you, I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon. And I will deliver him into your hand. So here she is speaking on behalf of God, making the will of God known to Barak. Also in verse 9, she says, I will surely go with you. This is in response to Barak's saying, if you don't go, I'm not going. She says, I'll surely go with you. But there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman, and there she is not speaking about herself. And then in verse 14, Deborah said to Barak, Up, arise, for this, day, this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. And so time and time again, what we see her doing is exactly fulfilling the office of a prophetess, speaking the word and will of God to Barak. And in this, she functions much like Eli and Samuel in that whole relationship. So to deal honestly with her, what we find is not an example of a strong-willed woman excelling in a man's world. We do not see here a woman who has cast off all restraint and then the culturally accepted norms, having overcome them by her own strength and by her own will. That's not an honest, biblical assessment of Deborah at all. She was a prophetess raised up by God to give direction through her words and her presence, just like Samuel. To see her as something less or something more is not to understand her at all. And yet, that's what so many want to do with her. See her as an example of something that she is not. Nowhere does she exalt herself, but everywhere she gives glory to the Lord. Now let's look at Barak. The one summoned by Deborah, the leader of the Lord's army, Many would tell us that Barak was weak. He was doubtful. He was not a strong man at all. This is the way most people view Barak. But there is a huge problem with that way of understanding him. And it is the fact that he's found in Hebrews 11 verse 32. What gives? An example is seen with Barak of the danger of allowing the current social climate to have a part in interpreting ancient scripture. Many want to see weakness in Barak. It's not there. Many want to see a coward in Barak. It's not there. Many want to see so many things in Barak that are not there. The writer of Hebrews immortalizes him. Let me say it even better than that. The Spirit of God immortalizes him in Hebrews chapter 11 as being a man of great faith. So cowardly goes out the window, right? It's gone. There are all sorts of ways that people deal with this too. The King James Bible gives credit to paul the apostle for writing the epistle to the hebrews i don't know who wrote hebrews doesn't matter but many would say that the writer of hebrews was a male chauvinist and therefore did not include deborah but the coward Barak in the 11th chapter i hope you have as big a problem with that line of thought as i do to call into question the holiness of God and his inspiration of Scripture and holy men of God speaking as they were moved along by the Spirit of God. On the other hand, do you think it would take a great measure of faith to run down the mountain to face Sisera, who had 900 chariots of iron? I think it would take a lot of faith. And so let's look at his interaction with Deborah, where he so often gets labeled a coward and weak. After Deborah, after Deborah, I combined them both. After Deborah says to Barak that the Lord is going to deliver Sisera into your hand, go to the river Kishon. What does Barak say to her in verse 8? Barak said, "If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go." And that's, that's the cowardly Barak, right? No. That's Barak wanting to be assured not of Deborah's presence, but the Lord's presence with him. She's the prophetess. She' is the one who is speaking for God. All Barak is saying here. If the Lord goes with me, I'll go. And the way that I know that the Lord will go with me is if you, his prophetess, go with me. I don't want to go where there is a famine of the word of God. I want the spokesman of God to be present. That is all that he is saying. He's not revealing a lack of faith. He is not revealing his his timidity or the fact that he is a coward. He is saying to me, he is saying, if... The presence of the Lord is not there, then I'm not going. But on the other hand, what's implied there? What's implied is if the presence of the Lord is there, nothing can stop me from going. Even though I'm leading a ragtag bunch of Israelites down the mountain to meet 900 chariots of iron, if the Lord is with me, I will go. Thus, the writer of Hebrews puts him in Hebrews 11. Tremendous man of faith. That's the way that we should rightly see Barak. He led an army against the most powerful king and the most powerful commander of that king's army of his day. The revelation of God's purposes is not another sign of Barak's weakness. It's another surprise of the Lord. We said last week, the Lord is not confined to the way he delivers. Last week he used a left-handed man, which you'll remember, that didn't just mean he was left-handed and could use his left hand better than his right hand. What it meant was he had no ability to use his right hand at all. Whether through injury or birth deformity, He was impaired in the use of his right hand. So surprise, surprise, God uses this left-handed Savior. And this week, surprise, surprise, God will use a woman to defeat the most powerful man on earth at that time. He is not bound by what we think is appropriate. He is not bound by what we can stomach. He is not bound what we will give our approval to. The Lord is sovereign. We are told in Psalm 115, verse three, he sits in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. And it pleased him to use the hand of a woman to put down the most powerful man in the world at this time. And to that, we just bow our heads and say, amen, so be it. So then we're introduced. Sisera again Sisera was glad to hear the news that Barak had answered the call to battle he thought that there would be great bloodshed of Israelites and really on paper there should have been there should have been a great slaughter of the Israelite people There should not have been a man left of them. Barak should have been completely destroyed. That's the way it appeared to everyone except the faithful few. But I want you to notice the verse that I've pointed out already. Let's start reading there in verse 14 again. Deborah said to Barak, remember she's a prophetess speaking up. To Barak, the word of God, she says, up, arise, this is the day. Pointing again, why did Barak want her to go with him? He wanted to be assured of the presence and the word of God. How would he have known this is the day if she hadn't gone? But now he knows. Unequivocally, he knows this is the day which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So what does he do? In great faith. Not in Deborah, not in himself. In great faith in the Lord his God, he goes down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. This is what the Lord did. Judges chapter 4 is not about Deborah. It's not about Barak. It's about what the Lord did to save. The greatest word in all of chapter 4, again, is this word, rout. This is the same word that's used when God routed or threw into a panic the Egyptians so that they were just throwing gold and silver at the Israelites as they made their way out. This is God using whatever means he wants to use To accomplish his purposes. And it always seems ludicrous to our minds the way he does it. A little blood put on a doorpost seems ludicrous to our minds, doesn't it? That the most powerful military man of this day would be put down by a woman seems ludicrous to our minds. But this is the way the Lord works. This is also the scandal of the gospel. That a lamb slain could save his people. This is the surprise salvation of the Lord. Perhaps through Deborah and Barak and the salvation that he would work for them, he is just conditioning the minds of his own people To look for him to work through lesser means and in a surprising way. Thus, a Savior on Calvary shedding his blood would later be raised in power. Thus, the Lamb of God, who would not even raise his voice in his own defense, would rout the power of sin, hell, and a demonic host. That's the glory of Judges 4. See it. If you see anything else, you've missed it. The Lord routed Sisera and all of his chariots. And how did he do that? We're not told right here, and we're not going to have time really to get into Deborah's song in chapter 5, but give it a careful reading. And what you'll find there is that she and Barak both give credit to a great flood of water that washed through the river Kishon, and in so washing away, washed away all the chariots of Sisera, all of those chariots of iron, just like the chariots of Egypt were washed away in the water, mired in the mud, and become completely useless before God. Read chapter 5. That's the way the Lord routed this army in a surprising way. So what does this mighty man do, Sisera? Who's the real coward in this story? He doesn't go take up a sword and begin to fight. He runs like a coward and hides. He alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot... But Barak pursued the chariots and the army first, and the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Notice, notice, not a man was left. Not a man. Again, should not have been a man left of the Israelites, but when the Lord intervenes and works on behalf of his people, there was not a man left of the strongest of the strong. Sisera, however, fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Haber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Haber the Kenite. This is important because Sisera thought by fleeing to Haber the Kenite. The scriptures are specific. There was peace between Jabin and Hazar. He thought that he was in a city of refuge. He thought he was in a place of safety. I am not at war with these people. And this is the wife of the king of these people. Certainly I am safe in his house. Jael went out to meet him. And says to him, turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me, do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. Then he said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. She opened a jug of milk. That's also in Deborah's song. Sisera asks for water. J.L. gives him milk to drink. And he said to her, stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and inquires of you and says, is there a man here, you shall say no. Again, he thought he was in a safe place. And I realize this is part of the scandal of this deliverance. No less scandal than the left-handed Ehud making a dagger, hiding it under his thigh, gaining an entrance to Eglon, the very large king, and at the appropriate time, Reaching in, taking the dagger, and burying it in his belly. This is no less scandalous what Jael does, but yet it's the way of the Lord's deliverance. What does she do? Jael, Haber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple and it went down into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary, so he died. And then Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And when she went into the tent, there lay Sisera dead with the peg in his temple. Regardless of what you think of the method, see the result in verse 23. And see to whom it is attributed and then put your hand over your mouth and say, amen. So that day, God subdued. Who subdued? God subdued. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. Don't you love the way that reads? No credit is given to Israel. Were they active in the battle? Of course they were. Did they shed the blood of some of the enemy's army? Of course they did. But notice verse 23 is so carefully worded. On that day God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. Israel, though active participants, are portrayed in this verse as being bystanders and witnesses of the power of They were in the blessed place, even though in the chapter earlier they were crying out because of being enslaved to this tyrant. They were in the blessed place of watching their God deliver them once again. And then in verse 24, the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin king of Canaan until they had destroyed Jabin king of Canaan. Of Canaan. Judges 4 is about mighty deliverance. Judges 4 is about a God who is mighty to save. Judges 4 is about a God mighty to save, very often using unprecedented methods. Judges 4 is about the glory of God and the salvation of a people enslaved. Deborah and Barak were were those whom he used. Give God the glory for Judges chapter 4. Chapter 5, again, we're not going to get into much, if any, We may come back to some of it next week. But it is a song of praise. Verse 1 reads, Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day, saying, And all of it is praise to God for what he's done. And there's some important details there about the way he did it. Let me close by... Asking a couple of questions. Harkening back to the way I began. Have you owned your own sin before the Lord? Have you seen yourself as sinful before him? This past week, did you again do evil in the sight of the Lord? Was there anything novel in it? Anything new and fresh and exciting? If there was, next week is going to be old and stale. And I love the quote from Del Ralph Davis again. The fast lane will very quickly become a muddy rut. How are you planning to break free from that? You've probably tried to break free in your own strength. You've tried to rout sin with your own strength. This doesn't work you can't it's impossible so what's the right thing to do own your sin before the Lord and cry out for a redeemer someone strong enough to come beside you and rout sin on your behalf and the 900 chariots of iron will melt away That's what Barak believed, and that's why he's in Hebrews 11. Will you believe the same? And you might say, you don't know the power of sin in my life. What a hold and a grip it has on me. Compare it to 900 chariots of iron. And perhaps you would say, that's a good comparison. Might I remind you of the ease of... With which those 900 chariots vanished. By these characters in the story acting in obedience to God. There is no power of sin that Christ cannot break. And I want to say that to the unbeliever first. And then the believer second. Believers fall into sin. Believers get ensnared in sin. Speaking to both, there is no power of sin holding sway over your life that Christ cannot rout and make it all melt away. There's responsibility on your part. You have to come. You have to believe. You have to exercise faith. You have to go down the mountain just like Barak. You have to hear the call of God. Arise, go up. And then you've got to move. God will work on your behalf. Don't hear me say that you have to meet God halfway. That's not at all what I'm saying. Salvation is first, foremost, ultimately, finally of the Lord. So that he receives the glory for it. You have to come and drink of the water of life freely with no cost. Come empty handed, no money, no price. The gospel of Christ and the salvation that He has worked is for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Judges chapter 4. We thank you for the salvation that we were able to witness and the routing of the enemy and the people you used to do it. Lord, I pray for everyone here this morning that we would experience the routing of sin in our life. Lord, and that you would use the Deborahs and the barracks in our lives, those who are speaking the gospel to us. Use it for good, but let the glory go where it rightly is deserving, and that is to you. Jesus Christ is both the author and finisher of our salvation. Help us with eyes of faith to cast our gaze upon him from this time forth and forevermore. Lord, be exceedingly gracious and merciful to unbelieving hearts. Lord, draw them out. Make them willing in this day of your power. Father, be exceedingly merciful and gracious to believers who are trapped in a net of sin. Help them like Barak to heed the call to come out, to run down the mountain and to be met there with the strength of God, with the deliverance of God, with the Spirit of God. God, do these things in a way that only you can do and receive the glory for them and we'll be quick to praise you. We pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus, the name above all names, the name at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Amen.